Uh, good morning. My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance, and uh, so grateful that you guys are with us today, uh, especially if it's your first time uh, to Renaissance. I, it is never lost on me uh, how difficult and awkward sometimes it is to walk into a, a brand new church for the first time, and you don't know if people are weird or not. Um, if you came with your friend, maybe your friend is the weird one, and um, we're, we're really grateful that you guys are with us today. Uh, the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking a lot about this concept of story. What's your story? I ask people that question a lot whenever we first sit down and, and meet. And in a lot of ways, I'm asking them for some of the details in their life to, to see who they are, where they're from, uh, do they have any siblings, um, do they hate Tom Brady the same way I do. I just try to find <laughs> what are the things about them that shape their life. Now, more importantly than this, the details and the events and where they're from is a bigger question, which is not just what are the details, but what is the story that is, that's guiding your life? Now, all of us have this thing called a narrative, and a narrative is essentially the way that you and I make sense of all the things that have happened to us, and from there, uh, that narrative shapes the way we view ourselves, we view the world, and to be perfectly honest, the way we view God. Now, before we go down too far down today, I want to define narrative for us so that we're all on the same page. Narrative from dictionary.com is a story that connects and explains a carefully selected set of supposedly true events, experiences, or the like intended to support a particular viewpoint or thesis. What's it saying? That all of us have this way of gathering events and information and interactions from our life, and from that point, we form a narrative. Uh, most of us have had things in our life, and many of these things, they don't have to be really traumatic, crazy, explosive things for them to really meaningfully shape us. Uh, for years and years, I've really had to discover what it is, the narrative that's shaping my life. The more I become uh, a follower of Jesus, and the more deeply I, I follow Jesus, the more I see that the deepest journey that Jesus wants to take me in is inward. A mission field in Bali is nowhere near as scary as me having to take a look at what's going on in my own life. Now, one of the things that has really powerfully shaped me might not sound like it's a big deal to you, but it really has, from every season in my life, shaped the way I view myself and view God. Now, when I first went to high school, I was four feet 11, and uh, I looked like I was nine years old, and I looked like I was on a class trip to high school from the elementary school. <laughs> and it didn't really fill me with the most confidence. And I have an older brother who's two years older, and uh, I would go to the lunchroom, and there'd be all these juniors and seniors sitting around at the lunch table. And who is the last person that a senior in high school wants to hang around? It's a freshman especially a freshman that looks like he's seven, and I would go to the lunch table, and as soon as I would get there, they would dismiss me, get out of here, you're making us look uncool to the girls that we're trying to gather. And I would go to the lunch table, and they would kick me out, and eventually I realized if I go to the lunch table and make some jokes, before you knew it, time would go on, and they would let me stay. So every day I'd work on my routine, and I'd start snapping on someone's sneakers, and what are those, and sometimes, 40 minutes would go by, and I had managed to sit at the cool kids' table for 40 minutes. 
In those moments, even though I had no idea what was going on, there was a narrative starting to be formed in my brain. That narrative is, if you want to be with someone who's valuable, you have to perform well. Later in life, later in that year, yes, y'all, mm, yes, mm, yo, I felt that, I felt that, I felt that. Uh, fortunately, it didn't always turn out in laughter. I remember one day, again, not a particularly traumatic event, but I, I do remember this day where I went, I did my routine, none of the jokes really landed, and one of them, juniors and the seniors, said, yo, get out of here, leave. And the guy who used to, like, no, nah, no, nah, let him stay, just kind of turned his back a little bit and started eating his pizza, like, sorry, bro. You knew that wasn't funny, sorry. And he just <laughs> left me to leave. Now, that further reinforced this narrative in my life that if you want to gain standing, you have to perform well. And if you do not perform well, you are discardable. Nobody even needs to have you around. Now, our narratives are not just personal, they're also spiritual. Imagine what that would do to the spiritual life of someone who, in, who believes that your value, your standing depends solely and mainly on how you perform. When I became a Christian in college and started following Jesus, my heart was brand new, but my mind was the same. So my walk with God was completely fear-based. I truly believed that in order for me to be welcome at God's table, I had to perform, and not just perform well, I had to outperform everyone else uh, beside me. I was terrified that if I didn't completely live up to the highest of high standards, Jesus was going to snatch away my salvation like Devo took Red's chain in Friday. <laughs> I, I hope all of you have seen Friday. <laughs> but my life would best be characterized as a sin prevention plan. Can you understand or could you imagine how fun that is? It's not fun at all. Can you imagine how I was to people who were around me? If I believed that my standing with God depended on how well I performed that day, I also projected out on other people, and I thought I was doing them a favor by letting them know how well they were not doing so that they would hopefully come up and be just as good as I was. Now, this narrative formed me deeply, and it's taken years and years of encountering the God who speaks, this God who speaks, who wants to reshape and reframe our narratives. Now, you might not have any idea what your narrative is, and you might be hearing this for the first time, and you might have no idea how you are, have been formed over the years through your experiences, but make no mistake about it, you have one. It's not mine, but it's, very, it's just as powerful as mine was. You have taken the collection of events from your life, and from that, you have determined what God is like what God requires of you, what you should be doing in your life. Uh, one of the sermons that we preached here at Renaissance that got the most response, and not in a good way, uh, wasn't about a message that I thought was going to be controversial. It wasn't about sexuality or money or anything like that. It was about the Lord's Prayer, the first line, Our Father. What I realized after that prayer, after that sermon, was to pray those words, our father, to people who had been abused by their fathers meant something very different. What was happening? It was their narrative informing the way that they saw and understood who God was. How could I pray to God as a father when my father found ways over and over and over again to manipulate me? He let me down so many times. 
Do you think that those experiences in your life would have no effect on your spiritual understanding of who God is? Now, you might not know what your narrative is, but make no mistake about it. You and I all have, we all have one. Now, my narrative got replaced, fortunately, through time and through some uh, years when I encountered this God who speaks. And over time, I started to see God differently, not because I had come to an epiphany on my own, but I encountered scripture that completely undid the narrative that I had been thinking God was all along. Uh, for me, it was the scripture of Matthew, Matthew 20. Jesus tells a parable uh, in Matthew 20 where it starts off like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. So Jesus sets the scene and he's talking to a bunch of people and he's like, listen, let me tell you what God is really like. God is like a landowner um, that owns a vineyard. And everybody's sitting around like, okay, well, that sounds good. And this landowner goes out and he hires a bunch of people to work on his vineyard. So he goes out first thing in the morning, uh, does a Dunkin' Donuts run, and grabs a bunch of people at 6 a.m. to start working at the vineyard. Later, he realizes he needs more work, so he gets another group of people at 9 a.m. He needs more work, so he gets another group of people at 12, then at 3, then at 5 p.m. Now, everyone listening was expecting Jesus to summarize the story in a much different way than what he does. And here's what, this is what Jesus, here's how he gets to the climax of the story. He says, uh, uh, he tells the manager to line, line everyone up from those people who got there last to the people who got there first, right? So they're all sending a line. He says, when those who were hired at about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner, these last men put in an hour and you made them equal to us who, who bore the burden of a day's work and burning heat? He replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous, Are you jealous because I am generous? I remember reading this scripture and getting a whiff of what grace was like. That all this time in my brain, I had thought, Jesus, I got here at 530 in the morning and I'm outworking every single person in this vineyard. I'm working as hard as I can. And you're going to give someone else the exact same thing you would give me? What does that mean? It means that the narrative that I had constructed about what God was like was wrong. God was a God of grace. God was not waiting for me to perform just to allow me to stay at the table. God was the one who pursued me and brought me to the table. My biggest fear for you guys is that two things. One is that you've compartmentalized your spirituality into a, a spiritual and an emotional health box where you don't see any uh, cross-contamination between the two. And you would think that all you need is a better Bible study plan. What you need are better sermons or better worship songs or a better community group that really digs into the word, but that there's an, a, a huge chunk of your life that you're unwilling to examine that's really shaping and framing the way you see God. Uh, the other fear I have is that you're not allowing God to reshape your story, that you're trusting your gut, you're trusting your experiences, and you're not allowing Jesus to come in and to reshape 
how you and I see God, but make no mistake about it, this is why Jesus has come, to reshape the way that you and I see God. I was thinking about the tragedies of uh, our church in America today, and one of the greatest tragedies that exists uh, is not black and white. Uh, No, the biggest tragedy that exists is we have done a fantastic job of shutting God out of our imagination and not allowing God to daily form us through Scripture. Now, we're in this series called The God Who Speaks, and essentially what we're saying is God speaks to help reshape and reframe our narratives. And next week, we're going to get to some of the more uh, pressing questions that some people have about, is this Bible even reliable? Like, can I even trust this thing to shape my life, to guide me, to redirect me? And we're going to get to some of those uh, arguments and conversation points next week. But for today, man, it would be an absolute travesty If you left here today and you didn't, in some ways, invite God to come into your life and reshape the narrative that you have in your life. So in our lives, um, one of the things that I've come to realize is that as soon as you meet God in Scripture, from the very first page, you see that God is by nature a God who speaks. In Genesis 1, um, uh, it introduces God as, as one who speaks. It says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God takes formless things and forms them by his words. The same thing that's true about the ocean and the continent is also true about our souls. God takes formless things, and he forms them through his words. God takes things that had been formed already and reshapes and reforms them through his words. God's words for us are meant to be powerful and to change us. There's a scripture in Romans 1.16, and you might have seen a t-shirt with this. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Think about what scripture is saying in that, in that argument, in that, in that verse. That the gospel itself is the power of God. If you feel like you don't have enough strength and, and inner, inner fortitude to change, it's, we don't need to change ourselves. Uh, God's word for us in it of itself is that power. So to take it even further, we see that when we encounter Jesus in Scripture, Jesus is called the word. That Jesus, his nature is synonymous with God's word. John 1, 1 through 4 and 14, it says... In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that had been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt and lived among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, when you put all this together, what we see is that the words of God are much more than just mere communication through human language, but God speaking is central to who he is and how he operates in our lives. To say that God speaks means that God is trying to do more than just fill the air with communication, but that God is trying to do something and accomplish something through his words. And again, what a tragedy it would be if we didn't allow God to reshape us through his words. Uh, My son, my three-year-old, he talks a lot. And um, he gets it honestly. He gets it from his mother's side. And 
He gets it from me too. I, I'm obviously doing this, right? I like to. Uh, and my brother and my mother uh, drove him up from Virginia to New York after we had a family vacation. We left early and they decided that they were going to drive him up. And I told my brother, I said, listen, make sure the iPad is charged. It's not just for him, it's for you also. Uh, my brother doesn't always follow the directions to a T, and uh, apparently the iPad died in Washington, D.C. And from the moment the iPad died in Washington, D.C., that's when the monologue began. <laughs> they pulled up to our apartment, and I opened the door, and he was still talking, just <laughs> going a mile a minute. Now, with kids, there's very little that he can say for four hours straight that's going to capture your imagination to tune in for that long. And the best thing you can do is to tune him out, right? Like after like six minutes, it does become background noise. And okay, buddy, that's cool. You know, you can tune him out. For a three-year-old who's talking, they're just talking to fill the air with speech. It's a new skill that they're learning. And it, this is to the people in here who say they follow Jesus. And if you're brand new to church and you're just figuring out, uh, you're trying to figure out who you believe Jesus to be, this one, you guys get a hall pass for this. A lot of you guys who follow Jesus, you treat God the same way people treat my three-year-old. And I don't, I don't say that to, to swing for your necks or to hit you with a haymaker, but in the, way that, in the way that if we were to be honest and evaluate the importance of us tuning in of setting aside time to hear from God in Scripture, it, it probably would look like us tuning him out. Part of that problem is for a lot of us, we don't necessarily know or we don't really get the most out of Scripture when we do read it or we don't know the best on-ramp to it. And it is on us as a church to certainly help you guys alongside with that. And make no mistake about it, we have a lot of things planned to help you guys continue to grow in your ability to, to crack open Scripture. But I also would want to, I don't want to take 100% of the, the responsibility. Uh, this past year, a couple years ago, uh, my wife and I really decided to learn Photoshop. And uh, what did we do? We went to the one place where you can learn anything. We went to YouTube, the University of YouTube. And we watched video after video after video on how to do different things with Photoshop. And it actually took us from being complete beginners with no knowledge of how to rasterize a file. I thought that was like a Jamaican song, like, oh, rasterize. <laughs> rasterize a file. I was like, all right, that sounds cool to me. Um, to go from, rest, you know, all of these terms, none of these things made any sense to me, but we were interested in it, so we, we pursued it. I don't want to let you guys off the hook. I, I want I us to walk gently and, and not to expect to turn into biblical scholars tomorrow. Please don't hear me saying that. But I, I don't want to let you off the hook too easily that a lot of us take the out. We'll take the excuse that we don't know what it is, so we'll just figure it out later. Here's why this is so dangerous. Here's why this is so dangerous. From the very beginning of time, the enemy had one tactic. You might not believe in the devil, but I do. But here's what his tactic is, to separate God's people from God's words. From the very beginning of time, the word of God has come to God's people, and people received it. What does he do? Did God really say this? The times have changed, the fashion has changed, but his tactics have not. What you interpret as busyness or distraction might possibly be demonic interference in your life to separate you from God and God's word, because what would be better than to keep you going down a path of adopting and, and moving in a narrative that's not true? 
man, some of the things that I, I talk to people who are back to church for the first time in a long time, and one of the things that harms people more than anything else are other Christians who were like me when I was, when I was in college. You came across some super self-righteous dude, some super self-righteous lady, and they pushed you as far away as possible. You were like, yo, if that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I'm Gucci. And as much as I want to apologize for them, I also want to say that that person was, had not been formed by Scripture. They had been formed by many other things. But it's not the God of the Bible who says, I'm going to come and give my very best, my son, my one and only son for you. That is not the story of someone who wants to make you tap dance to earn your way in. There's an old story in the scripture, the most popular one, if you've ever read it, it's the parable of the prodigal son. And it's his son that runs away and wiles out completely. And it's scripture says he came to himself and he decided to go back to his father. A lot of times people misunderstand that scripture when it says he came to himself. They think that he had this amazing moment of clarity where he decided that he was going to try to do right and live uh, according to his father's rules. No, it says he was broken, he was hungry, he had no other options. His motivation was completely selfish. When scripture says that the father saw him, it says when he was a long way out, he ran to him to find him. And he hugged him, not because he wanted him to perform to get to the table, he just wanted his son back at his table. God's narrative, God's word for our lives is meant to shape us, and uh, it would be the greatest joy of my life as, as a pastor, as someone who gets to talk to you guys about faith, to see you guys on the journey, on the journey of letting God rewrite your narrative, because make no mistake about it, that's what Jesus has come to do. Uh, there's a scripture in Mark 1.15 where Jesus comes to the scene, and it's Jesus' first sermon ever that he's preached, and up until this week, I really didn't understand it. Uh, as much. Um, and as I've really studied it this week, it's really started to take on a brand new meaning. And when I first read it, it might not make as much sense to you, but hopefully it will uh, become clearer. Here's a line from Jesus, his first line, his first sermon. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, when I first heard Jesus saying, repent and believe the good news, it really sounded like Jesus was saying, like, yo, kick in the door, wave in the 4-4, I'm here. I'm here now. Everybody get down. And if Jesus were to say that, if he were to come in just uh, guns blazing, telling everybody what to do, he actually would have the ability to do that. And parenthetically, I do want to also make sure that we're allowing this category of God changing our narrative to be one that we are wanting God to do. And here's why. A Jesus that can't challenge you can't change you. So Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of, uh, of God is near, uh, repent and believe the good news. Now that word repent uh, is a big christian -y word that a lot of you guys might have heard, but in its proper context, it doesn't mean what you might think it means. Uh, in the original language, it's the word metanoia. And as long as I have student loans from seminary, I have to continue to use Greek words. Uh, <laughs> so for the next 37 years, we're going to be doing this. Um, so metanoia literally means to change the way you perceive. So Jesus comes into the scene. He says, uh, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now change the way you see God. Change the way you perceive everything about who God is, who you are. 
and what it is that God wants you to do. Now, in Jesus Christ, it says first that he has come near, and in us having a better view of who he is, we can see more closely. I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but uh, I don't do it anymore because I don't have permission to buy a new TV, but I used to go to Best Buy and just look at the TVs, <laughs> the Magnolia section with the leather couches and everything like that. And when you first walk into the store, when you first walk into the store, all of the TVs look the same from like 100 feet out. But when you get like seven feet out and they, get, they, they recline the chairs, the brown leather, and they let you, you kick your heels up and you see this super expensive crystal clear TV up close, man, then you can see all of the intricacies and all of the beauty of what it is. Not because it's become more beautiful, but rather the thing that's beautiful is now more close. Jesus is saying here that now the kingdom of God has come close to you. Now you have a better view of what God is like. And now I'm, I want this to change your perception of who God is. And that's, amen. So Jesus is saying that he's coming to change the world, the way that you and I perceive God and the way that we perceive our, ourselves. And here's what Jesus understood. Of course, repentance, uh, the word does involve change, or change in behavior, but that happens 30 miles after you've changed your mind. He's after changing our mind that we would experience a transformation in our brains uh, to understand who God is. Now, in Matthew, the same scripture, the same sermon account, Jesus, it says that from then on, Jesus went out preaching the good news. And over and over and over again, Jesus is trying to change the way people understand who God is. So you'll see lines like, you have heard it said this, but I'm telling you this. Over and over and over again, Jesus is challenging people and confronting people with what they thought they believed and actually changing uh, it into something that is actually true. You've heard it says, but I'm telling you. You've heard it says, love your friends and hate your enemies. But now I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who want to harm you. Over and over again, Jesus is attempting to change our perspective, to change our narrative, to change the way that we see God. In a culture that valued money, Jesus says, bless are the poor in spirit. In a culture that valued the big celebrated leader with tassels and the one who can speak the best, Jesus says, bless are the humble. In a culture that valued happiness over anything, Jesus says, bless are those who mourn. Over and over and over again, Jesus is attempting to change the way we see ourselves and God. And scripture writers pick up on this later on where Paul says in Romans 12 and 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by what? By renewing of our minds so that you may be able to discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. If there's anything that the enemy would want to keep you from, is having your narrative changed by the words of Scripture. And again, I get it. There's a lot of reasons for you to have reservations. And we're going to dig into some of those later on in this series. But Jesus has come to change your narrative in the way that you see God. So... In the earliest pages of scripture, as we see God speaking and the function of God speaking and uh, how God wants to change us, uh, oftentimes the next question that happens is, well, how does this actually work? Like, how would it work if I were to actually per pursue uh, scripture, uh, more meaningful engagement with scripture? And I'm not talking about reading the Bible this year or some plan that you started where you make it six days and then you fall off, but just more meaningfully engaging scripture at a, at a good pace um, so how does our, our narrative actually get changed? Um, Psalms 1 has a, a really great framework for how I want us to end it today. Uh, Psalms 1, 1 through 3, it says it like this. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advi advice of the wicked, 
or stand in a pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his or her delight is in the Lord's instructions, God's words to us, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. There's three things that will happen to you if you meaningfully engage with Scripture and you'll start to see it. Um, the first is that uh, you'll bear fruit in season. One of the concepts you see over and over again throughout Scripture is this concept of seasons. And basically that means in, you will not reap in the same season you sow. So many people are really discouraged because you read a Bible one day and you're like, see, nothing happened. I tried it for like two days. Two days I tried it, nothing happened. But we don't approach anything like that in life, or we shouldn't. None of us would approach uh, a workout routine like that. That if you've been watching Netflix and eating Crunch and Munch for two years, and you go to the gym for two days, and you look in the mirror and just suck it all the way in, and you don't see any progress happening, what Scripture says is that if you engage with Scripture meaningfully, it's going to bear fruit in season. It's going to bear its fruit eventually. Now, one of the things that's really interesting, in your life, you've eaten thousands, thousands and thousands of uneventful, uneventful meals, meals that you do not remember. They were just okay. And what did it do? It helped you grow. It helped sustain you. All through your childhood, you ate thousands and thousands of chicken nuggets and uh, whatever meals it was, and you don't remember any of them, but it helped you grow. You might not encounter scripture and have amazing mountaintop experiences, but it doesn't mean it's not going to bear fruit in its season. Uh, the second thing that's going to happen is it says your leaf doesn't wither. And what is that talking about? It's talking about endurance, endurance to be able to navigate different seasons and more challenging seasons in life, specifically when there is not optimal conditions for a plant. Now, my wife and I have killed every plant that we brought into our home, except for like one cactus. But I do know this about, and that one's on its way out, but I, I do know this about gardening, all these different things. Different plants, the ones that are planted and have access to good water, grow. They thrive. Even when the sunlight is not as great as it could be, they'll still survive. As a pastor, uh, I encounter a lot of people who leave uh, the church, not because of anything we've done, hopefully, but sometimes they have just fallen away in faith. They have just stopped believing. And it hurts me the most, not when it's people who were on the, the fringes, but people who were, they were serving. They were in community groups. And what I've come to realize over time that it's usually one of two things. One, it's unexplainable circumstances that happened in their life and it was just too big for them and it really rocked them to a core and they walked away. The other is that I realized that those people had been coming around so much to different events, activities, but they weren't actually having their stories rewritten by God himself. They heard good sermons on Sunday every other week. Uh, they heard good worship. They heard all these different things, but they weren't actively engaged with the one that truly could change their narrative. So they were around us, but they weren't really with us. And I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want you to walk away from church one day saying this God thing is not all it's cracked up to be if you're not getting everything out of it that God wants you to have. And the last thing it says, and all they do, they prosper. And to say prosper, it doesn't mean that um, everything, you'll just be shining and everything will be perfect but it means that uh, it will accomplish what it's, what it's intended to do, meaning that in everything that you're intended to do, it will succeed. 
I don't know what it is that God has for you, for your life, but I know he has something. Every last one of us. And the way that you and I reach and bathe in the fulfillment of everything that God has for us means that we have to be having our stories constantly rewritten by God. Now, tomorrow is the deadline for new people to sign up for community groups. And we're also going to be, I hope everyone has replied to the community group leader. Um, we haven't sent out our group email yet, so sorry to my group. But um, to get in community group. And the community group is a time where people don't do anything fancy. We just gather around scripture. We read it out loud together. We let it rewrite our stories. What I hope for you that you would do, and again, sign-ups in tomorrow for new people. Uh, man, I, I hope that you would commit to eight to 10 weeks of allowing God to rewrite your story through scripture. There's a lot of other things that could be fun to do and a lot of other ways you can spend your time. But what a tragedy it would be if we didn't commit everything that we knew at our disposal to let God rewrite our stories. We pray for us. Uh, Jesus, you, you want to rewrite our stories. Uh, you want us moving in faith and not in fear. You want us moving in joy and not in misery. You want us to feel accepted and not like we have to earn anything. You want us feeling secure. You want us living as world changers, bold and courageous. But Lord, none of this will happen if we're not allowing you to rewrite our story. So Father, I pray that uh, in the small and big ways that we're going to grant you access to rewrite our stories, I pray that you would meet us. I pray that you would meet us powerfully and that we would start to see the fruit that you want us to have in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.